From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we welcome Nobel Prize winning economist James Heckman, whose latest research into early childhood education finds that a high-quality pre-K experience can continue to pay dividends decades, even a generation later. Well, the original treatment people were more likely to be married, they are more likely to have intact homes, the children were more likely to grow up in a home with higher income and with both parents present. And this created a nourishing environment for those children that just simply wasn't the case for a lot of the children of the control group. Heckman discusses his latest research into the Perry Preschool Program, a landmark 1960s study that examined the impacts of high-quality pre-K on at-risk children. Nearly 60 years later, research shows that Perry has not only changed the lives of its former students, but the lives of their children as well. They were doing much better in terms of schooling, in terms of earnings, in terms of reduced participation in crime, and in some measures of health and mental health. And so it did seem that there were stark differences between the treatment and the control group children. Heckman joined CPRI director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss his findings and some important takeaways for early childhood policy, practice, and future research. So it suggests that there's a misallocation of our resources, that right now early childhood programs are competing with lots of other social and uh, governmental services in the same budget, but without a realization of how the long term will be affected by using them. That's right now on Research Minutes. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Jonathan Sapovitz, Director of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, headquartered at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Today, I have the great honor of speaking with James Heckman, the Henry Schultz Distinguished Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and a world-renowned expert in econometrics and the economics of human development. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Heckman. Well, it's my pleasure to talk with you. So today we're going to discuss your latest research on the Perry Preschool Program, which is a pretty unique study that started out amazingly in the 1960s. So can we start by, if you could just tell us a little bit about the original study? Oh, yes. I mean, the study has been much discussed and even being replicated around the world in different environments. But this study was a very innovative study for its time. This predates the uh, Head Start and really, I think, influenced the creation of Head Start. But a very inspired individual, Dave Weikert, uh, had the vision that the early lives of children were very important and that disadvantaged children were not getting the same stimulation and the same care as ordinary middle-class people and certainly not affluent people. So he was trying to make an intervention to create something but was mostly focused at the original outset. It was basically trying to boost the IQ of children. And uh, at that point, I think a lot of educational research and research generally focused on intelligence as kind of the main factor. And the idea was to boost IQ. So that was the initial goal. 
So the Perry Preschool Project ran from 1962 to 1967, and it involved more than 120 African-American children, all between three and four years old, who were living in poverty and had risk factors that increased their odds of future failure in school. The study group was enrolled in a high-quality preschool program, which involved an active learning curriculum, regular home visits, and other supports. The comparison group received no preschool education. Now, Jim, following the preschool program, both the Perry students and the comparison students were followed up annually with surveys until they were 15. And then there were follow-ups, and this was amazing, when they were 19, 27, 40, and 50 years old. And you picked up doing these analyses when they grew up into adults. Now they're approaching their 60s, but you were originally studying them when they were 40 and 50. Is that right? I studied the age 40 cohort. I actually looked also at the age 27 cohort, uh, partly because I just wanted to see if this is real. And I uh, wanted to see how, how robust the results were. And so I got more and more interested in it. And I found, indeed, the results were quite robust, despite a lot of criticism about small samples and on and on and on, attrition. The fact of the matter is that the results were very, very striking. And I think informative. We thought this is really a great opportunity to look at people as they're aging. They're going into early stages of old age or late adulthood, I say, late middle age. And so I don't know which euphemism you use, but we did go into this with an idea that we could use better measurements. And we could then compare them with uh, other studies of adults with different backgrounds. And we knew their backgrounds. This is from a study done by NIH called the Health and Retirement Survey. So what we did was develop a format and try to get an interview protocol that would match what the Health and Retirement Survey had done and add to it substantially by bringing in measurements of health as well as cognition, new measures of cognition, new measures of personality skills and and other traits, and then trying to get link up with Records, public records, like finding out who is, you know, from the public record, some measure of crime. I mean, you know, self-reported measures are not very accurate. And we got permission to, from the people themselves, to look into the uh, crime records, predominantly in Michigan, but some, quite a few, well, not a huge number, but I'd say maybe 15 or 20 percent had drifted away from southern Michigan and were uh, from Michigan totally. And we, we were able to track them. Well, some people died, of course, and that we couldn't follow. Uh, but we, we found out when they died and whether or not the program had an effect on the age of death. But for those who survived and took the interview, we were able to get very comprehensive measures of health, intelligence, personality measures, and then, of course, schooling and criminal histories and just about every dimension you might want to think about a human's life, how they might have problems or might have real uh, achievement. One thing that we should mention is that the original study, which was actually 123 preschool students, were randomly assigned into two groups, which really is the basis for being able to compare the effects of those who experienced the high-quality preschool program and those who didn't receive any preschool education at all, which is very important. It is important. So, Of the age 40 group, I just have some of the findings here that you found that the age 40 group who experienced the Perry Preschool program 
had fewer teenage pregnancies, were more likely to have graduated from high school, were more likely to hold a job and have higher earnings, and committed few crimes, and more likely to own their own home and car, which is pretty amazing to follow preschool children to age 40. That's a pretty unique study. It's unique, but it shouldn't be. And I mean, this is a huge problem, actually. Uh, And it's a problem that is really, since you're in education school, I think is in part fostered by the RCT mentality in uh, some education schools. And it's really not asking about long-term follow-up and sort of taking the first one-on-one results, the first, even the first year or first few months and extrapolating over the rest of the life. And the Perry people were wise enough to try to see, did these results hold? Did they build on themselves? Did these people become even better as they age because they had more opportunities? So I think there should be a longer term perspective. But I know that many people still to this day, and it's true for economists, people in education, psychology, and so forth, who are content with very short-term follow-ups and very bold conclusions, too. You know, that's interesting. And I think there is a growing appetite for more longitudinal data. But on the flip side of that, sometimes you won't detect effects until a little bit later on in the process. So sometimes we judge things prematurely, which is the flip side of what you're talking about. Yes. And that was the case, actually, with Perry, as it turns out. The first few years, there was an enormous boost in the IQ of the treatment group compared to the control group. And I have an excerpt from the local newspaper near Ypsilanti, Michigan, where the program was being executed, or applied, I should say. And uh, they pointed out, ah, you know, we really have substantial gains in IQ, and this is very, very important. And they were beating their chest and saying, we really have succeeded. And then the roof fell in when they looked at the age 9 or 10 results, and they found the treatment group was no no better than control in terms of the cognition, the measure of uh, IQ that they were using. And of course, you know, that kind of finding was really important for a lot of the political debate in the late 60s and 70s. It wasn't that Perry sprung it. It was this study that was done, I think, by Mm -hmm. Westinghouse that got Arthur Jensen on the bandwagon and really claiming, looking at Head Start and seeing that it didn't boost IQ, And basically saying, look, there's no hope for these people because there's a genetic component here and we're just wasting our time. And that work, even though that's done in 1969, that 50-year-old work still resonates in a lot of parts of social science and policy analysis. And it was really a great example of looking under the wrong light uh, lamp post, I guess. So But it's, again, something that took a while to really develop. In the end, as we're going to discuss, the Perry children did remarkably well. They graduated. They were very successful, less crime, much more actively engaged, less likely, as you said, to be uh, divorced and more likely to have an intact family, and on and on and on. And so, literally, that stimulated the question, why? Remember, There was at one stage where cognitive psychology was the be-all and end-all, not just in education schools, but in evaluation. There was a big controversy whether human capital was anything but a signal for IQ. And what wasn't understood, and still isn't in some quarters, 
is the important role of social and emotional skills in creating flourishing lives. A major scientific contribution of the Perry study was really that the original investigators had very good records, what sometimes are called deportment records that school teachers would take, measures of uh, ratings from third persons about child personality, aspects of perseverance, and, you know, some notion of how diligent they were in classwork. And those were measures that actually many of the measures mapped closely into modern measures of what we call the big five these days, what psychologists call. So I think study for me, I think for a lot of people, changed the way that we think about evaluating these studies. And secondly, it said, look, since their IQ is no higher, but they're doing very well, something happened. And that something, at least the measurement of that something, seemed to suggest personality skills, social skills, the ability to interact with others, self-control, and basically uh, the ability to control externalizing behavior. They basically focused on behavior. Part of the curriculum was getting kids to work together, to not only work privately, but to work together, in a sense, judging each other's work, creating some joint projects. And uh, it, was, it was really fostering those skills, which then showed up even early in their elementary school years and the rest of their lives. So let me focus on your latest research, which looked at how the Perry Preschool experience impacted the children and the siblings of the original students. And that's pretty, pretty powerful to look at the impacts of a preschool program on the children of those original toddlers. So what led you to kind of push to continue to look at the effects on, on those original preschool kids? Well, I think given the enormous interest for decades about social mobility and intergenerational mobility, a natural question was whether or not there were any sustained effects across generations, whether or not the kids who benefited in the first generation were likely to, uh, did produce children or created environments that were more conducive to child development in the second generation. And so, to my knowledge at that time and still to this moment, there wasn't any study like it. And so, we did directly conduct surveys to assess that question. And now, we, of course, we assessed the surveys looking at the original participants and then finding out their children and tracking them down. But that means that the second study the one looking at the second generation, is not really a randomized trial anymore. We can control for a lot of characteristics. But nonetheless, it's not like we suddenly randomize people to be in or looking at children in and out. But the fact is we had very detailed data by that time. And we had very complete inventories about social-emotional skills, about IQ, records of a school, how children were actually... Uh, succeeding and so forth. So we knew a lot about their parents, a lot about the children of the parents, and we thought it was a great opportunity to understand if this finding could persist, whether or not you could actually create second generation and maybe hopefully third generation effects. And it was intuitive that it might, but nobody had shown it. So what did you, what did you find when you looked at the children of those uh, Perry preschoolers? Well, as a group, what happened was that the children of the Perry preschoolers, the treatment group children, 
children of the control group, those children uh, were doing much better. And uh, they were doing much better in terms of schooling, in terms of earnings, in terms of reduced participation in crime, and in some measures of health and mental health. And so it did seem that there were stark differences between the treatment and the control group children, the children of the treatment and control group, the original group. And that proves, or at least suggests strongly, that there is a strong causal effect. And if you look at the mechanisms which were giving rise to this effect, as you can see, the, the treated people, the original treatment people, were more likely to be married. They were more likely to have intact homes. The children were more likely to grow up in a home with higher income and with both parents present. And this created a nourishing environment for those children that just simply wasn't the case for a lot of the children of the uh, control group. That's so interesting. One thing that I found really provocative in what you found was that the neighborhoods that they lived in didn't really differ. Is that right? We actually found that it seems like the primary mechanism operating in those neighborhoods is through the family and some some of the social institutes. And it literally takes us right back to something which I think is pretty basic in understanding, which is true across many fields, sociology, economics, anthropology, certainly in education schools, of the importance of the family and nurturing the child. And so we found that very interesting. And I I think it's important. There's a big wave. I'm very worried about the so-called atlas of opportunity because people are really talking in a vague way about opportunity. And, you know, the zip code by itself determines something. What is the zip code? I mean, (laughs) maybe it's the social interactions, the peers, could be the quality of schools, but it's also the family life. And the fact of the matter is the family life plays a huge role. We have a parallel. We have another study going on in Denmark where we have much more complete data. And sure enough, we find that people sort somewhat. People sort. But remember, sort. (laughs) What that means is you got to be really careful. So the neighborhood can also stand for the characteristics of the family itself. Well, it it raises some provocative questions about maybe the interactions between home life and neighborhood life. Exactly. And you wonder what it is. And that's still to be delineated. How much we should target. So the Perry kids did pretty well. And we couldn't find any sense. But most of the Perry kids, almost by design, were living in the same neighborhoods. Close by, some of them moved away when they were growing up. But they still were in the neighborhood because the Perry program was only the first few years. They could have gone elsewhere. Most of them stayed in Ypsilanti in the neighborhood of the Perry Elementary School. It's still an elementary school. So the structure uh, was such that, you know, we didn't have a lot of variation to look at. But you're absolutely right. That's a great question. And it should be addressed. And we are trying to address it on another study in Denmark. Another aspect of your study, which was really interesting, was what you call the spillover effects, the impacts on the siblings of those original students. Talk a little bit about what you learned about the brothers and sisters of those Perry preschool students. We definitely found that the children benefited. You see, part of the effect of these programs, much of the literature has been very unclear about why these programs work. Uh, you know, they, they will say, oh, we took the kid out of their environment or we gave them a clean school, better food, 
Uh, there are a lot of reasons. You know, we had good classrooms and on and on and on. But what uh, is another component that's been isolated now? I'm doing a study in rural China now, which isolates these components very, very well. If these are left behind children in Gansu, a very poor province. And what we're doing is simply one, one thing. These peri-type programs and the ABC programs are like shotguns. You have a lot of different things going on in the life of the kid. They go to the center, you know, they play together with the kids and all that. What the program is that we've been working in in Jamaica and then now also in China, in rural China, is a program that does one thing. It basically teaches the mother how to interact with the child. The child is present, but the main focus of the interaction is encouraging the mother and teaching the mother what useful tactics, what useful mothering activities will promote the life of the child. And there's a similar program that was conducted, helped start, but they didn't run it, in Ireland. Orla Doyle, who's at the University College uh, Dublin, uh, really conducted the program, which follows kids up to about age 10 or 11. And she finds similar activity, just the act of home visiting, which teaches the parent to engage, is really boosting the children. Now, I believe that one of the principal advantages, they you know, there were visits to the home that the caregivers from Perry did visit the home. They did interact with the mother and the mothers could go to the preschool too. So there was definitely encouragement of interaction. I believe the main mechanism, I can't prove it right now. I'm looking to prove it, is that basically it's the notion of enabling the mother to know how to interact with the child. Then if that's true, then the children themselves other children in the family will benefit from that because the mother now knows how to raise kids in the sense of reading to them, teaching to motivate them, and so forth and so on. And then the, the other sibling, the, the one who is the primary target, siblings play together and they would be motivating their, their brothers and sisters. So we did find a very important uh, spillover effect, which I think is important, very important. So that's interesting might have been a spillover, spillover effect in the sense that it spilled from the preschool to the parents to the siblings or from the preschool to the preschoolers to the siblings. Yes. And we don't, we don't have a clear channel one way or the other. Right. But it, but it raises some interesting questions to explore. It does. But it also suggests uh, something else, that in the design of future studies, so many people focus on one child they take the family out of context. So a lot of families have multiple children, especially disadvantaged families. So you want to look at the impact on the family. You know, we found in the ABC Darien study, huge effects of the preschool program. This was an eight-hour-a-day preschool program that was also effectively providing daycare for people in the treatment group. And that subsidized, in some fundamental sense, the mother so she could go back to school she could go to work, and she was bringing income into the house uh, for the treatment group children. So it was a, one of the big benefits that came from that particular program. Perry was only a few hours a day, and it really wasn't all-day child care. ABC was. Right, right. So there is an effect providing child care, stimulating the mother, and uh, that itself is another flow. If the parents are making more income and they're providing more resources... Not only they're more knowledgeable, but they also would have more resources to invest in the child.
Right, right. So given your your work with looking at the longitudinal effects of this early childhood experience, what would you say to policymakers and or educators who are looking to invest in early childhood education? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of people are quite aware of that. A lot of the politicians are even aware of it, the better educated ones, because the advocacy groups have been uh, far reaching and they have made their point. I believe I heard several of the candidates, the Democratic side, uh, talking about preschool and early early years, not exclusively, but recognizing it's important. I think there is some awareness now. The trouble is always that there's this mentality in government. And I think it's become worse than it used to be much better, which is kind of a short-run mentality. I mean, pe- people have a budget. They see this program or these kinds of activities as just another cost, like, you know, paving a road, fixing a sewer, or, you know, just spending money on better gardens in the city, whatever. Something that will have a short-term payoff, you mean? Yeah, well, generally, fixing a sewer may not. But the fact of the matter is that there is a very short-term mentality. And even the federal government, you know, the, the Congressional Budget Office talks about the fact that now a lot of projects are evaluated only over a seven-year horizon. I mean, imagine if you applied that to the building of the Transcontinental Railroad or the, you know, the Hoover Dam or any of these other projects that have paid off TVA and uh, and on and on and on. And so I think that mentality has crowded out something. That's one thing. And the second thing is that government decision-making, about 50 years ago, one of the great legacies of the war on poverty was basically that it not only tried to upgrade the skills of disadvantaged people, although it did so in a somewhat scattered way, but it did also really ask for a return, rate of return analyses, cost-benefit studies, so that these programs could be on the same footing as, say, building a water reclamation project, which the Army Corps of Engineers has to do a cost-benefit calculation. And I think if you did a lot of calculations, like just ask the question, you know, the city of uh, Minneapolis wants to build a sports stadium. It sees real benefits. You know, people say, oh, it's going to bring in so much money. And, well, it does bring in some money. But the question is, what is the rate of return on that investment compared to the rate of return of investing in children? And I've looked at that. And the rate of return on children is very, very high. Like in the ABC project, when we looked at inclusive health benefits, we still don't have those fully monetized in the Perry Project. But in the ABC study, we found that the rate of return after tax, so all the distortions that economists worry about, people trying to avoid taxes and you know some activity being delayed and people you know withdrawing from the labor force because of a high tax rate or something, but all of those distortions added in, we still found that the rate of return was around 13% per annum. And that's a huge rate of return. That's an, that's an after-tax rate of return. And it's not counting a lot of public programs. It's just counting building the stock of health, building, you know, reducing the burden on prisons, and the burden on education. You know, the special education was greatly reduced by children who participated in these programs. So that many parts of society that was really... We're trying to kind of remedy 
the disadvantage, the consequences of disadvantage were costly and they were alleviated and are eliminated in some cases by these programs. So a proper measure, a proper way to proceed, and this sounds more like a sermon now, but a proper way to proceed would actually be to evaluate alternative programs that can be monetized by looking at what the rate of return is. How much do you get out of this program versus that program? How much more? If you say, okay, let's expand uh, Medicare to some older people versus say, let's spend money on young children. And where are you getting the highest return? And some people have made that calculation. And the fact of the matter is, for many reasons, the early childhood programs are far more productive. So it suggests that there's a misallocation of our resources. That right now, you know, early childhood programs are competing with police, with, you know, fire, competing with lots of other social and uh, governmental services in the same budget, but without a realization of how the long term will be affected by using them. So my last question was going to be why of all the topics you've decided to invest your time in studying education, but I think you just answered that much more eloquently than if I had probably asked the question. Yes. I mean, it's, uh, that's the economist's perspective, of course, but literally when I entered this area, nobody had actually computed a proper measure of rate of return. I mean, a proper measure that laid out all the ingredients that produced standard errors, that showed how robust or non-robust the calculation was. And we, we did that. We did that also for ABC on very high return. So what happens sometimes in these programs is there's a whole array of effects studied. You know, look at health, look at crime, look at earnings. How do you aggregate all those effects? Uh, some people use ad hoc statistical methods and take a principal component or a factor, some index. But the index is meaningless. It has no interpretation. The dollar metric does give you an interpretation, and you can actually use it to say how it compares to other programs and ask that those other programs show similar efficacy, so similar efficiency and use of public money or even private money. That is well said. So this has been an extremely fascinating and incredibly valuable work that you've done, Professor Heckman. I really encourage all of our listeners to check out the full study on your website, heckmanequation.org. And Jim Heckman, thank you so much for joining us today on Seabreeze Research Minutes. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to this series, visit us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub. <laughs>